0: with Dr. Frank Turek. Ladies and gentlemen, how do we know that the New Testament writers actually told the truth? How do we know that they did not lie? Last week, we spent a fair amount of time on names in the New Testament from Dr. Richard Baucom's book, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, which I think, and many others think, is very good evidence that this is not an invented text, the New Testament, that is. And as you know, Bauckham covered the Gospels and Acts. And a few months back, uh, I think it was March 19th to be exact, we had a program here called Reasons You Can't Make This Stuff Up. You can't make this stuff up. I want to expand on what we talked about that day. Reasons you can't make this stuff up. Today we're going to give more reasons you can't make the New Testament up. That it does not appear to be an invented text. Now. On March 19th, so what, what was that, about three months ago, we covered embarrassing details, embedded confirmation, and the excruciating deaths of the New Testament writers of the apostles. We'll say a little bit more about those, but I want to expand our conversation a little bit further. So if you put last week's podcast together with March 19th, along with what we're going to talk about today today. We'll try and cover as much information as we can as to why the New Testament writers did not invent what you're reading in the New Testament. By the way, you know there are two questions when you're looking at the New Testament. The first question is, do we have an accurate copy of what the New Testament writers actually wrote? And then the second question is, if we have an accurate copy, did they really tell the truth? I mean, we could have an accurate copy of a lie, obviously. Now the first question, do we have an accurate copy of the New Testament documents, is pretty much a settled question. Even among skeptical scholars, they would agree that the essentials of the New Testament are known. What was written down back 2,000 years ago, we know, beyond any reasonable doubt, we have in the manuscripts, and we've been able to reconstruct what those documents said that were written down by the apostles. We can reconstruct them with more than 99 0.5% 0.5% accuracy. Even Bart Ehrman, who wrote the book Misquoting Jesus, will admit that the essentials of the New Testament that was written down back 2,000 years ago is the same one we have now. Or to say it another way, the documents we have now are the same ones that were written down 2,000 years ago. So, question number one is pretty much a settled question. The second question is where, where more debate comes in. Were they telling the truth? Did they invent this? How much is truth? How much is error? Well, I think the evidence is very strong that they're telling the truth, and it would take more faith to believe that they weren't telling the truth than they were telling the truth. So we talked about, as I say, embedded confirmation. We talked about embarrassing details or or embarrassing stories, and we also talked about the excruciating deaths of the apostles. Let's also talk about evidence outside the New Testament. And so, The first reason I want to give, or the first piece of evidence I want to give, other than the ones we've spoken about, that the New Testament writers are telling the truth, is that the basic storyline that the New Testament puts forth is confirmed by non-Christian sources. And there are about 10 ancient non-Christian sources within 150 years of Jesus's life that if you add up their references to Jesus and the apostles or to Jesus and the writers of the New Testament you get a story congruent with the New Testament who are these people well they're historians like josephus the jewish historian tacitus suetonius thallus flagon household names right there are government officials like pliny the younger emperor trajan emperor hadrian all mention aspects of the events of the New Testament. And then there are other sources like the Jewish Talmud and the Greek writer Lucian. Now, when you compile their references, we get a story congruent with the New Testament. Um, Now, let me be clear. The people that have written this material down were not eyewitnesses of Jesus. Uh, Josephus was born in about 37 AD, so Jesus had just died a few years prior to that and the other writers are writing just a little bit later. So these are not eyewitnesses. However, they're getting information from somewhere, and they had no obvious axe to grind by inventing what they said here. But when you add up what they've said, these 10 ancient non-Christian sources, here's, a, here's the basic storyline you get. One, Jesus lived during the time of Tiberius Caesar. Two, he lived a virtuous life. Three, he was a wonder worker. This is well known. He was some kind of miracle worker. Number four, he had a brother named James. In fact, Josephus is the one that tells us that James, the half-brother of Jesus, dies at the hands of the Sanhedrin in 62 AD. Josephus and another writer later, uh, Hegesippus, They tell us that James is killed. He's killed by the Sanhedrin. He's thrown off the Temple Mount, and then he's stoned to death. And Josephus identifies him as the brother of Jesus, which is interesting, by the way, because as you know, James, when Jesus was walking the earth prior to the resurrection, did not think his own brother was God. He, uh, he didn't believe in him, according to, to John, the eyewitness who wrote that even his brothers didn't believe in him. That's another one of those embarrassing details they wouldn't have invented. Yet somehow later, about 30 years later, James is dying as a martyr for basically being the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. Now, why would he be doing this? Why would he be dying as a martyr when Jesus was walking along on the earth prior to the resurrection and James didn't even believe in him? Well, I think we understand why he's a martyr, because according to the creed in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 to 8, this is the early evidence, earliest evidence for the resurrection anywhere in the Bible. It uh, is recorded by Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, yet Paul received it earlier than when he wrote it down, which was about 55 or so A.D. And you know that creed, which even skeptics, even Bart Ehrman admits it's very early, way back to the crucifixion event itself, maybe within a year or a few months, that creed mentions as one of the people Jesus appeared to, his brother James. Paul also says, he appeared to me as well, Jesus did. Now that must have convinced him, James that is, that his own brother was God. (laughs) Prior to that, he didn't think so. But after you see your brother who's risen from the dead, you go, okay, maybe you are God. So Jesus lived, lived during the time of Tiberius Caesar. He, he lived a virtuous life. He was a wonder worker. He had a brother named James. He was acclaimed to be the Messiah. He was crucified under Pontius Pilate. This is all from non-Christian sources, ladies and gentlemen. An eclipse and an earthquake occurred when he died. He was crucified on the eve of the Jewish Passover. His disciples believed he rose from the dead. Now, These writers, these non-Christian writers, are not saying they believe Jesus rose from the dead. If they they did, they'd be Christians, right? No, but they're saying the disciples believed he rose from the dead, and that his disciples were willing to die for their belief. Now, that's a pretty good admission right there. Although these writers aren't saying they think Jesus rose from the dead, they're admitting these people think he did, the people that were closest to him, and they were willing to die for it. Also, Christianity spread rapidly as far as Rome. Rome. And finally, his disciples denied the Roman gods and worshiped Jesus as God. Now, ladies and gentlemen, let me review that. Jesus lived during the time of Tiberius Caesar. He lived a virtuous life. He was a wonder worker. He had a brother named James. He was acclaimed to be the Messiah. He was crucified under Pontius Pilate. An eclipse and an earthquake occurred when he died. He was crucified on the eve of the Passover. His disciples believed he rose from the dead. His disciples were willing to die for their belief. Christianity spread rapidly as far as Rome. His disciples denied the Roman gods and worshipped Jesus as God. This is what the New Testament documents say. Now, where did these non-Christian writers get this data from? Why are they admitting the same thing that the New Testament writers are saying? If this is all invented, doesn't seem like they are inventing this. It's well known that these people believe these things. Then, therefore, maybe it really happened. You're listening to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with Frank Turek on the American Family Radio Network. Website, crossexamined.org. Crossexamined with a D on the end of it.org. We're back in two minutes. Don't go anywhere. The second reason, additional reason, We know the New Testament writers told the truth in addition to the fact that we have non-Christian sources giving the same basic storyline. The second reason is that the New Testament writers have put historical crosshairs in the text, and there are also numerous confirmed eyewitness details. What do I mean by historical crosshairs? Let me read uh, a little section to you of an ancient document, and as I read this document, Ask yourself, does this writer sound like he's making up a story? By the way, you're listening to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with Frank Turek. And what I'm going through today, most of it you can find in the book, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. Here's what this ancient writer said. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod Tretrach of Galilee, his brother Philip, Tetrarch of Iturea and Tractonicus, and Licinius, Tetrarch of Abilene. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the desert, unquote. Does it sound like he's making up a story? No, that, those verses happen to be the first two verses of the biography we call the Gospel of Luke, chapter 3. That's Luke 3, verses 1 and 2. He's not making up a story. In fact, an exact date is given. The 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar was 29 AD, dependent upon how you count when his reign started. In that range, about 29 AD. All eight people that are mentioned in that quote, Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, Herod, Philip, uh, Licinius, uh, Annas and Caiaphas, John, son of Zechariah, those names, all eight people, they're all known from history. And they're all known to live at this exact time. This is obviously not a once upon a time story. It's not a myth in the sense that we mean myths today. It's not invented. Luke would have completely discredited himself if he tried to pinpoint all this happening using these people who are known in history And saying that they were there at this time and then none of this really happened. It wouldn't make any sense. And what motive would he have to make it up anyway? So Luke puts historical crosshairs in the text. And then he peppers the second half of the book of Acts with at least 84 historically confirmed eyewitness details. We mentioned this last week. These 84 historically confirmed eyewitness details or historically probable eyewitness details are all documented in chapter 10, I think it is, of I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. And of course, Luke mentions several other of these details in his gospel. Some of them we just read. John, the gospel of John, which many say is written late, maybe around 90 AD. He includes at least 59 historically confirmed or historically probable eyewitness details in his gospel. Again, these are all listed in chapter 10 of I don't ever have enough faith to be an atheist. Now, let me say one thing about the uh the dating of the Gospel of John. Uh Dan Wallace, who as you know is one of the top manuscript scholars in the world. We've had him on this show before. Uh, if you want to listen to a great program with Dan Wallace, uh, get the cross-examined app, two words in the app store, and go back and look him up because he is someone who knows the manuscripts, has debated other manuscript experts like Bart Ehrman. And uh, I got talking to him on one of these podcasts, and I, I asked Dan, uh, I said, Dan, when do you think the Gospel of John was written? Because I've noticed that in John chapter 5, it says that there is a pool uh, called Bethesda in Jerusalem. Now, that pool would not exist after 70 AD because the whole city was destroyed, as you know, by the Romans. Yet John seems to be writing as if that pool exists while he's writing. So that would, that would make the Gospel of John prior to 70 AD, maybe just prior, rather than the later date of 90 or 95, as many have suggested. And when I asked Dan that, he said, you know, Frank, I did a long piece of research on that about 25 years ago, and I came to the same conclusion. Now, <laughs> he came to the same conclusion, meaning that the, that the New Testament was written earlier than most people think. I'm sorry, the Gospel of John was written earlier than most people think, prior to 70 AD. So that's just not my, my guess. It's what Dan Wallace, who's much more of an expert than I certainly am on this matter, he thinks— It's written earlier than 70 A.D. Not that that is a big deal, but it is interesting. I mean, why else would John be saying there is a pool known as Bethesda in Jerusalem while he's writing if it had been destroyed 25 years earlier? Also, another piece of historical data that seems to imply strongly that these writers are not making this stuff up is that the New Testament documents cite more than 30 people Confirmed by secular sources or archaeology. And in last week's podcast, we went through these people. I read them all. I won't do it here, but these are people like the Herods and James and John the Baptist and Pilate and, and Caiaphas and Jesus himself. These are all people mentioned outside the New Testament or confirmed by archaeology. Now, if you're making up a story about uh, Jesus, you're inventing all this. Why would you use the names of real people who could easily refute what you're saying if this is a completely invented story? And at that time, there wasn't anything known more uh, like an historical novel. This was not a genre that, that, was, that was invented by that time. So to say this was some kind of historical novel wouldn't make any sense. And yet you have real people Outside the New Testament, who are mentioned in the New Testament, and the New Testament mentions them as prominent characters in the story. And some of these people obviously could maybe hurt you. I mean, the Herods or Pilate, they could hurt you if you were telling lies about them. Yet the New Testament talks about these people as if this really occurred. It doesn't appear to be an invented story. And as you know, there's been archaeological discoveries that have proven people like Pilate exist outside the New Testament. The great Pilate stone found in the coastal Israeli town of Caesarea. I've been there. I've seen that stone. Also, the Ossuary of Joseph Caiaphas, which is one of the most fabulous finds of archaeology, in my view, ever. They actually found the guy that sentenced Jesus to die. They have his bones. They found the burial box for him. Uh, if If you go to the Israel Museum right there attached to the shrine of the book, right across from the Knesset in Jerusalem. You can see this limestone burial box, an ornate limestone burial box called an ossuary. You can see the very one that contained the bones of Joseph Caiaphas and his family. This was discovered, I want to say, about 1990. Yeah, 1990 uh, in Jerusalem. And uh, now it sits in the Israeli Museum, or the Israel Museum. and, And The only Caiaphas we know from history is the high priest Caiaphas, who was the high priest from 18 to 36 AD. The high priest, obviously, that sentenced Jesus to die. We have his burial box. This is not an invented story. In fact, way back about 20 years ago, Jeffrey Scheller, who wrote the book, Is the Bible True?, and he was a U.S. News and World Report (laughs) reporter, He was a Christian, but as you know, U.S. News and World Report is not a Christian mouthpiece. Here's what Scheller wrote over 20 years ago. He said, in extraordinary ways, modern archaeology has affirmed the historical core of the Old and New Testaments, corroborating key portions of the stories of Israel's patriarchs, the Exodus, the the, the Davidic monarchy, and the life and times of Jesus. Well, That's the whole Bible, Old and New Testaments. I mean, the patriarchs like Abraham, Exodus, Moses. Davidic monarchy, David, life and times of Jesus, yes, archaeology corroborates some of the events and people in the Bible. Obviously, it can't corroborate all of it, but where we find archaeological finds, they corroborate the Bible. We don't find finds that contradict the Bible. So, if it can be trusted on what we have found, why can't it be trusted on what we haven't found or where we, what we can't verify? And, you know, there's a couple of reasons that people typically will not uh, give the Bible the benefit of the doubt. Number one is an anti-supernatural bias. We talked about that last week. And number two is an anti-morality bias. What do I mean by that? People don't want it to be true. Because if, if Jesus really rose from the dead, then he's God and whatever God teaches is true. And he said the Old Testament was too, true. He promised the New Testament. People don't want the moral authority that Jesus brings with him to invade their lives and dictate to them what they can and can't do. They're not on a truth quest or on a happiness quest. They don't want that to be true. Now, some may say, well, Frank, why you might want it to be true. Look, we all have our motivations. That might be true, that maybe I want it to be true, and maybe other people don't want it to be true, but those motivations don't change whether or not it is true. They don't. It's true regardless of motivations or it's false regardless of motivations. What will tell you whether or not it's true is the evidence. And so you need to look at the evidence. What I'm saying is a lot of people will dismiss the evidence or will will cause or, or their presuppositions or their motives will cause them to either not look at the evidence, dismiss the evidence, or interpret it in such a negative way that there's no way they're going to give it any credence. I mean, if you have an anti-supernatural bias, every time you look at some miracle claim, you're going to say, well, we know that can't be true. And if you're really concerned about the moral implications of Christianity, you'll do everything you can to not give the New Testament the benefit of the doubt. So, look, in just about every other historical document, you give the historical document the benefit of the doubt unless you can somehow show that it's false, necessarily, or there's evidence that defeat it. With the Bible, for some reason, well, the reasons I'm mentioning, for, the, for those reasons, it seems to me that people don't want it to be true, and they consider the Bible guilty until proven innocent, false until proven true. In fact, uh, Friedrich Nietzsche, the great atheist, said that a person's spirit or a person's character could be measured by how much truth he could tolerate. Now, that's a true statement by Nietzsche, one of the great atheists of the, the 1800s, as you know. Think about that. A man's spirit or a man's character is measured by how much truth he can tolerate. A lot of times we can't tolerate truth. We want to suppress the truth because it's going to get in the way of what we want to do. In fact, the full quote from Nietzsche said, measured by how much truth he could tolerate, or more precisely to what extent he needs to have it diluted, disguised, sweetened, muted, falsified, unquote. He said that in Beyond Good and Evil. Seems to me there are so many people out there that use jack nicholson's phrase can't handle the truth they don't want it to be true they can't tolerate it because if it's true that has implications on their life not only now but in eternity you're listening to i don't have enough faith to be an atheist we have more reasons why you can't make this stuff up right after the break we're on the american family radio network and we're also in podcast at i don't have enough faith to be an atheist back in two If you notice, we try and avoid wasting any time getting right into the information here. You're listening to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with Frank Turek. We're talking about more reasons why you can't make the New Testament up. We were just talking about the fact that the New Testament has eyewitness details throughout it. And they don't appear to be invented. They don't appear to be invented at all. They had no motive to make this up. In fact, when you think about the writers of the New Testament... All the writers of the New Testament, with the exception of Luke, we don't know who wrote Hebrews, but it's probably a Hebrew of some kind, right? <laughs> probably a Jewish person. All the writers of the New Testament, with the exception of Luke, were all believers in Yahweh. Luke was the only Gentile. Everyone else is a Bible or Old Testament believing Jew who thought he was God's, one of God's chosen people. So you got to ask yourself, what motive would they have to invent any of this to begin with? As we talked about before, the three motivators, sex, money, and power, they got none of that. They, got, they didn't get sex, they didn't get money, they didn't, got pow- they didn't get power by saying this was true. They got beaten, tortured, and killed. So why would they invent this story about a man in the middle of time claiming to be God and then rising from the dead? Two things they didn't think would happen. Certainly nobody claiming to be God should claim to be God because according to them, that would be blasphemy, and nobody would rise from the dead until the end of time. And yet here they are saying that, yes, we're Jews, but this Jewish man, Jesus, rose from the dead. And by trusting in him, you can not only be forgiven for what you've done, you can be given his righteousness. Who would invent such a thing? doesn't appear to be invented at all. Okay, so we talked about some of these eyewitness details. Let me revisit a little bit more about the embarrassing details. We talked a little bit about this on the March 19th show. Let me go into this a little bit more because I think, at least for me personally, this is the piece of evidence that, for me anyway, shows they're definitely not making this up. Because you would not include embarrassing details that make either yourself or the supposed hero in your story look bad if you're trying to pass off a lie as the truth. Notice the, the writers of the New Testament and the apostles, the people in the text are dim-witted. They depict themselves as dim-witted. They fail to understand what Jesus is saying several times. I mean, they didn't know what he was talking about. They didn't know what he meant. In fact, they don't really even understand his mission until he's already ascended to heaven. This is after he's resurrected from the dead and then ascended to heaven. Then they finally go, "Wow, I could have had a V8." But up to that point, they didn't really get it. Now that's embarrassing. Why would you invent that? They also are uncaring. They fall asleep on on Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, not once, but twice. He just says, hey, stay up with me and pray. What do they wind up doing? They wind up conking out on him twice. They're uncaring. And then they make no effort to give Jesus a proper burial. They had been following this guy around for three years, and they don't even try and bury him? Who buries him? According to them, Joseph of Arimathea. Who's Joseph of Arimathea? he's a member of the Sanhedrin. What did the Sanhedrin do? They sentenced Jesus to die, even though Joseph didn't agree with that. In effect, they made somebody who was part of the enemy, so to speak, the Sanhedrin who sentenced Jesus to die, they made him look like a good guy because he was. They weren't inventing it, but if they were inventing it, why would they make him look like a good guy? Why didn't they bury Jesus? Also, they're rebuked. Peter is called Satan by Jesus. Do you think they made that up? You think Mark, who wrote that down, said to Peter one day, hey, Pete, I'm going to make this a real interesting story. I'm going to have the Lord call you Satan. Have him call you Satan. No, they never would have done that. That doesn't make any sense. And then Paul rebukes Peter for being wrong about a theological issue, about his practice, actually, with the uh, Gentiles. In Galatians chapter 2, Paul says, I told Peter to his face that he was wrong for trying to get these New Testament believers to obey the Old Testament law. Here is one apostle rebuking another apostle in the book of Galatians, in the New Testament documents. Do you think they would have invented that? That's not invented at all. That's embarrassing, but they're telling the truth. Also, they depict themselves, the New Testament writers do, as cowards. The disciples run away. This was like a Monty Python movie. Run away. They all run away. And who are the brave ones? The women. The women are the brave ones. Now, who wrote the New Testament down? Men. Now, what man is going to invent that he was hiding for fear of the Jews why the women went down and discovered the empty tomb? Nobody would. And why would they say that Peter denied Christ three times? They wouldn't do that either, but he did. This is not invented. I actually had a lady come up to me once and she said, I know why Jesus appeared to the women first. And I said, why? And she said, because he wanted to get the story out. I said, that is an excellent point. I had not thought of that. Now, the New, Testament, the New Testament documents were written down by men. Why would they say the women were the first witnesses, why they ran and hid for fear of the Jews? You know, a woman's testimony was not considered on par with that of a man in that culture. So why would you even have the women involved? You wouldn't if you're making it up they're not making it up. That's the point. As embarrassing as it was that the women were the brave ones while the men ran away and the women were the first witnesses, they said it was true. And by the way, one of those women was Mary Magdalene, a formerly demon-possessed woman. Oh, what a great witness. Do you, <laughs> you think they invented? Let's, let's see if we can get Mary to be our spokesperson here. This does not make any sense if they're inventing this. They're not Inventing it. Also, as you know, Jesus on the cross says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why would they put that in there if that didn't happen? Seems like Jesus is, is in despair. Well, he is. He doesn't necessarily die in some sort of big heroic matter manner. He's he's afraid. He's sweating blood at one point, as you know. He doesn't want to go. He says, Father, if there's another way to avoid this cup please but if not not my will but your will and he goes to the cross and then he's forsaken by the father which was the greatest pain he experienced because judicially he was innocent but he volunteered to go to the cross and he took all of the punishment due us unto him and yet Christ went there Voluntarily, and he took our punishment on himself when they could have depicted him in a much more heroic manner if they were inventing it, more like Socrates or something, but they didn't. They just told the truth that Jesus was in great despair. Also notice that the New Testament writers are doubters. Despite being taught several times that Jesus would rise from the dead, I mean, John 2, John 3, Matthew 12, Matthew 17, Matthew 22 to 23, all these places are actually in, let me say that again, John 2, John 3, Matthew 12, several places in Matthew 12, In Seventeen twenty-two to 23. The disciples are doubtful when they hear his resurrection. After being taught so many times he would rise from the dead, they don't believe it. It's these emotional women who have told us he's risen from the dead. How can we believe this? And one of the most amazing passages is that the New Testament writers, or the disciples, are even doubtful after they see him risen. In Matthew 28, 17. They're doubtful. He's, he's risen from the dead, and he's standing in front of them. He's given them the Great Commission. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations. Notice he doesn't say make believers. He says make disciples. Why? There's a difference. Not just a believer, but somebody who's actually following Jesus. But as he's given them the Great Commission, it says some believed, but some doubted. He's standing right in front of them, and they're doubting. You think they invented that? No, they're not inventing that. They're just telling the truth. If they were inventing this, who would have doubted? Nobody, or very few would have doubted. Especially if you're trying to get everybody else to believe what you're saying. If you're trying to get future generations to believe in Jesus, why would you say the people who witnessed him rise from the dead even doubted he had risen from the dead? You wouldn't. They're not making this up. And then there's embarrassing details about Jesus. He's considered out of his mind by his own family who come to seize him and take him home in Mark chapter 3. You might hear the scholars say, well, the New Testament writers invented Jesus to be God. Oh, really? Then why is uh, Mark chapter 3 in there, which is almost universally recognized to be the earliest gospel? Why is his own family think? Why does his own family think he's out of his mind? Why does his own family think he's out of his mind? If they're trying to dress Jesus up as some sort of divine figure. This is embarrassing. He's deserted by many of his followers in John chapter 6 after he says, Do you want to follow me? You must eat my flesh and drink my blood. And many of the disciples said to him, Hey, this is a hard teaching. We can't follow this guy anymore. And then he turns to Peter, Jesus does, and he says, Are you going to leave too? And the most intelligent thing Peter ever did or said was this. He said, Lord, you have the words of eternal life. Where else are we going to go? And when you think about it, friends, where else are you going to go? What other worldview makes the most sense and offers the most in terms of not only your contentment, but also your eternity than Christianity? It's true the evidence is it's true but if you were just shopping around like at some sort of cafeteria person saying i want this and i want that or i want that but when you really look at christianity and you look at the god of the universe who took on human flesh entered this time space continuum to take our punishment on himself to enter into suffering so he could ultimately quarantine suffering and save us from our own iniquity. When you look at that, who else is there that does this? This is unlike any other world religion. Every other religion is do this and do that. Christianity is Christ has done it all. You just trust in him. Where else are you going to go? What else makes the most sense? What else is as beautiful as that? That God saves us. That we just trust in him. I, don't, I, I can't think of anything else. And it happens to be true. Jesus is not believed in by his own brothers. He turns off Jewish believers to the point that they want to stone him when he's having this conversation in John chapter 8. They want to stone him because he says, Before Abraham was born, I am. Who is he quoting there? He's quoting Exodus 3.14, the burning bush. Do You remember when God appeared to Charlton Heston? yeah moses says to god who shall i tell the israelites you are god says tell them i am Sanji. what does i am mean it means the self existent eternal one the being that will that had no beginning and will have no end but this segment has an end so we gotta go we're back with one more segment right after the break you're listening to i don't have enough faith to be an atheist with frank turek back in two We're talking about reasons you can't make the New Testament up. We're in the middle of talking about some more embarrassing details, which tend to show that the people who wrote this down are not inventing this because you might lie to make yourself look good. You won't lie to make yourself look bad. And the New Testament and even the Old Testament is filled with details that make the supposed heroes of the text look bad. Right now, we're even talking about points that make Jesus look bad. Uh, he's called a madman. He's called a drunkard. He's called demon-possessed. You think they made that up? Why would they make that up? Hey, they're calling the Lord demon-possessed. Well, that should engender him to some future generations, don't you think? He has his feet wiped with the hair of a prostitute, which easily could have been seen as a sexual advance. And oh, by the way, notice there are two prostitutes in Jesus' bloodline, Rahab and Tamar. Do you think Matthew and Luke, when they were writing down the genealogy, said to one another, you know what, I really think we ought to spice up the Messiah's bloodline a little bit. Let's put a couple of prostitutes in there. How about Rahab? How about Tamar? No, they're not inventing this. In fact, if you look at Jesus's bloodline, it's filled with shady people. Judah, from where we get the term Jew from, not a good guy. Check him out. Uh, David's in there. Oh, David. David's after after a man after God's own heart, Frank. What do you mean? Yeah, but he's a liar, adulterer, and a murderer. Gee, I guess there's hope for the rest of us then. Bathsheba's in there. You know when Matthew gets to her in the genealogy, he won't even mention her name. You know what he says instead? Uriah's wife. Ooh. That's a slam. I mean, he's telling the truth. But it's kind of a backhanded way of telling the truth. It was Uriah, husband of Bathsheba, whom David had killed so he could have Bathsheba as his wife. So this is not an invented story. You'd never see the Pharaoh saying, you know, the Pharaoh's historian saying, oh, yeah, Pharaoh, here's your genealogy. I got a couple of prostitutes in there, some people who are really shady. You know, (laughs) Pharaoh would say, off with your head. Also, Jesus is crucified despite the fact that anyone who's hung on a tree is under God's curse, according to Deuteronomy 21-23. If you're making up a Messiah to the Jews, you don't hang him on a tree because anyone who's hung on a tree is under God's curse. This was embarrassing. Indeed, it was. That's why we're saying it's unlikely to be invented. And there are more embarrassing details. But this just goes to show that the New Testament writers are not making this up now there's so much more we could say about this and so much more we could say about the new testament and the evidence for christianity in general that if you want to go a lot deeper in this you got to come to cia this year and we're almost full if you want to be a part of cia the cross-examine instructor academy august 12th to 14th you've got to sign up before june 15th which is coming up here in a few days you got to go to crossexamine.org click on events you'll see cia there and it's a three-day intensive program where you'll not only learn from us, but we're going to actually evaluate your presentation skills and how you answer questions. I'll be one instructor along with about nine others, like Greg Kokel, Jay Warner Wallace, Jorge Guild, Brett Kunkel, Sean McDowell, Elisa Childers, Natasha Crane, Richard Howell. Uh, There's a few others I'm leaving out right now. I don't have the the flyer in front of me, but go to crossexamine.org. Click on events, go to CIA, and uh, you will see how to apply. It's uh, an intense three days. It's not cheap, but it is worth it. In fact, we have people who come, who've, who've come back seven and eight times. This is our 14th annual uh, CIA. It's going to be at Calvary Chapel, Chino Hills, out there in California. Great church, great place to go, great place to be. And I uh, hope you can join us. We only take 60 people. We're almost at 50 right now. So if you want to be a part of it, you better sign up real soon. And that is the Cross Examine Instructor Academy. All right. I want to, I, let me talk about another reason we know that the New Testament writers are not making this up. How about the demanding sayings of Jesus? These are things that are really inconvenient <laughs> if you're a follower of Jesus. That you'd probably rather have him not say. And yet he said these things, and the disciples, the New Testament writers, recorded it. If you just think about adultery or with lust in your heart, you're guilty. Well, thanks, Jesus. We're all guilty. Yeah, that's the point. We all are. Divorce. That's rarely acceptable. Give more than you're asked to give, said Jesus. Oh, come on, Jesus. That's inconvenient. Love your enemies and pray for your enemies. Jesus, this is too difficult. By the way, as you notice, love your enemies presupposes that love is not a feeling. Why? Neither, or By the way, neither is it, a, is it approval. Love is not approval, as our culture seems to think it is. Because you couldn't love your enemies if it required you to feel good about them or to approve of them. No, love is a decision to seek what's best for the person you're trying to love. And that may require you to be inconvenienced. In fact, many times it will require you to be inconvenienced. It may require you to tell people the hard truth that you know they don't want to hear. But if you love them, you'll tell it to them because you love them, because you want what's best for them. And sometimes you need to tell them what's best for them. Love does not mean approval. If it meant approval, that would mean you'd have to approve of evil and we can't approve of evil. It would mean you could never correct your children who want to do evil. No, you have to correct your children. If you don't, you're not loving, you're unloving. Other demanding sayings of Jesus. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Jesus, I can't do that. Yeah, I know you can't. That's why I did. I did it for you. Now you just trust in me. How about do your good works quietly and privately? Don't don't trumpet them. Then you'll get your reward from people. But if you keep it quiet, you'll get your reward in heaven. But no, I want to tell everybody what a great person I am. How about don't store up temporal but eternal wealth? He said that too. Oh, Jesus. I'll feel a lot more secure if I could could really secure up a lot of temporal wealth or do not judge hypocritically or you will be judged. Notice he didn't say don't judge. He didn't just stop there. He said, judge not lest you be judged. By the same standard you judge others, you be judged by that standard. So before you try and take the speck out of your brother's eye, you hypocrite, which is a judgment, then take the log out of your own eye first. Then you'll be better able to help your brother. So he's not telling us not to judge. He's telling us how to judge. Don't judge hypocritically. It would be Completely ridiculous to say don't make judgments because, number one, it's a judgment itself. Number two, you'd be dead already if you didn't make judgments. But still, this is a hard thing to follow. And as I mentioned earlier, he also said, eat my flesh and drink my blood. Jesus, what are you, a cannibal? What's the deal with that? These are hard sayings, demanding sayings of Jesus. Do you think they invented these? Doesn't seem like they did. They did not invent these. That's another reason. To believe that the New Testament writers did not invent this. Also, a fifth reason. The apostles carefully distinguished their words from those of Jesus. In most cases, there's a couple places in the Gospel of John, we're not exactly sure if it was Jesus saying this or John saying this, but in most cases, Jesus's quotations are clear in the Gospels. And Paul carefully distinguishes his words from those of Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 7, he says, I have a word. This is my word, not from the Lord. And then in Paul's books, he only quotes Jesus twice. You notice that? In 1 Corinthians 11, he quotes him by saying uh, that uh, he, he talks about communion. He's quoting Jesus And he's probably quoting from the Gospel of Luke in 1 Corinthians 11. And if he's quoting from the Gospel of Luke, that means the Gospel of Luke is written prior to 55 AD. And then in 2 Corinthians 12, he quotes Jesus as saying, my grace is sufficient. But how convenient would it have been for the apostles, particularly Paul and Peter and others who wrote the epistles, to quote Jesus or to make up quotes from Jesus to deal with church controversies? like, shall we obey the Old Testament law, or circumcision, or tongues, or women in the church, or these kind of things that were controversies early on in the church, how convenient would it have been if the New Testament writers could simply invent quotes from Jesus and say, hey, this is what Jesus said about this, end of story, end of debate, end of controversy, here it is. They didn't do that. They did not pull rank by making up quotes from Jesus, which is telling us what? This is not an invented story. They're being true to what Jesus did say and what he didn't say. So they were very disciplined, very disciplined, in saying exactly what Jesus said and what he didn't say. So this is not an invented story, ladies and gentlemen. I could go into more. I have more here, but I just don't have time to get into it all. But just to review, more reasons why they didn't make this up. The basic storyline is confirmed by non-Christian sources. That's number one. Number two, there's historical crosshairs in the text, and there's eyewitness details throughout the text, as we've mentioned. Number three, there are embarrassing details about the writers themselves and even embarrassing details about Jesus. Number four, there's demanding sayings of Jesus they wouldn't have invented. And number five, the apostles carefully distinguished their words from those of Jesus. And all of these, by the way, all these reasons and more, you can find in the book, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist, if you want to go further. But let me go back to what was said a podcast or two ago about this. I see people who are skeptical New Testament scholars trying to change the past. Do you remember the Soviet dissident joke we mentioned in the last podcast? In the Soviet Union, the future is known. It is the past that's always changing. Why is the past always changing? Because if skeptics can change what you think about the past, they can control what you will do now and in the future. Don't let skeptics, who have very poor evidence in my view for their positions, to get you to disbelieve, What the evidence seems to suggest is true about the New Testament, and that is the New Testament writers are telling the truth. If you have an anti-supernatural bias or an anti-morality bias, it may cause you to say, oh, I can't believe the New Testament. I can't believe what happened to Jesus or what Jesus said and did or what the apostles said and did or the miracles of the resurrection or any of that. But if you have those biases, set them aside You shouldn't have an anti-supernatural bias because you're living in the greatest miracle of all, the creation of the universe out of nothing. A resurrection is certainly possible if Genesis 1-1 is true, and Genesis 1-1 is true. Anyway, there's a lot more we could talk about. We'll talk about it again soon. You're listening to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with Frank Turk. I hope to see you here next week. Don't forget about CIA, the Cross-Examine Instructor Academy. Go to crossexamine.org, click on events, click on CIA, and I hope to see you out in California in August. God bless.